Father in heaven, as we start to open up your word, we're asking for a heart that is really fixed on Jesus. I pray for me personally, um, just against the, the fatigue of my own body and mind, and um, just that you would give me the ability to listen to your voice and to, to be an instrument of yours. Um, I pray for each one in this space that as we open up the Bible, that you would open up our hearts. God, we want to hear from you today. We don't just want to read these words over and have some, some good things to think about. We really want to hear from you. So please speak to us. We pray in Jesus' saving name of the family say. Amen. Amen. All right. Matthew chapter 7. If you're there, go ahead and say amen. And if you can see verse 1, go ahead and read that first verse with us. It says, Judge not that you be not judged. How many of you, by a showing of hands, have ever heard this verse before? Yeah? Okay. Have you, have you ever even heard somebody quote this who, who really wasn't a, a Bible student and this, they just happened to say, hey, don't judge me, <laughs> right? <laughs> judge not. Um, when I was living in Modesto, California, there was this gym that opened up down the street from where we lived, and I noticed something on the sign that really caught my attention. Um, it was something like this. I don't know. Have you ever seen this be- before? judgment-free zone. Uh, it was Planet Fitness, and I think this, this, uh, this gym franchise or whatever just started not, not too long ago, but um, yeah, I, I've been confused about that spelling too. I think it, anyways, there must be two spellings for judgment, <laughs> but, um, but Planet Fitness, I think, hit upon, upon something. They hit on a barrier that keeps people from experiencing growth, right? Uh, they realize that, hey, people need to, to get more healthy. People need to get more activity in their lives. But sometimes people are kept from experiencing growth because of the fear of, of judgment or criticism or the opinions of others. And um, I wonder if that translates into our need for spiritual growth. That sometimes, you know, we know we need to grow, but we're not even willing to venture into it because of the fear of judgment or the fear of criticism or the fear of other people's opinions along the way. You know, as we're getting into Matthew chapter 7, we're actually nearing the close of this epic sermon that Jesus is preaching. It's, it's known as the Sermon on the Mount, right? And um, if you've been following, if you've been tracking along with this sermon, uh, as you've been reading, like, wow, um, all these things that Jesus is instructing about what it is to live uh, this life that is led by God. And, you know, we talked a little bit of... Um, a few weeks ago about this concept of exceeding righteousness. Let your righteousness exceed that of the, the Pharisees and Sadducees. You, you, you've probably realized or you've probably noticed that the kind of life that Jesus is instructing us to live or inviting us into is actually um, a life that is way beyond us. It's a life that, man, it makes you realize as you look in the mirror, you're struck by this conviction that I have a lot of room to grow. And maybe you realize that we all have a lot of room to grow. And here's the funny thing about um, recognizing our need at times. I don't know if this is true for you. Maybe this is just true for me. But there's a defense mechanism. When I, when I recognize an area in my life that I need to grow in, one of my defense mechanisms is to look at other people who need to grow in that area even more. Does that ever happen? Or maybe I'm just the only one. Okay. <laughs> but, but we have this defense mechanism where we realize we need to get better in something or we need to change something or alter a habit or modify this in our lives. And um, instead of paying attention to that more, we actually pay attention to that area in other people's lives as well. And I imagine Jesus' audience, as he's 
you know, speaking on these awesome principles of the kingdom of heaven. And he's sharing what righteousness really looks like. I imagine Jesus kind of like people watching as he's saying these things. And he sees uh, a wife nudge her husband and say, you need to hear that. You know, <laughs> or, or someone else looking around, I hope they're paying attention. You know, that kind of a thing. And here's, I imagine Jesus getting to this point. You know, he's already been talking about seeking the kingdom first, like, like Edre spoke about last week, and not worrying about tomorrow. He's been already talking about what it is, you know, lust begins in the heart, murder begins in the heart, all these kinds of things. And here, as he's wrapping up the sermon, he needs people to know, hey, d- don't just like pay attention to other people's foibles. You know, you don't need to worry about that. Um, but he wants them to know that, when you're living this life, there are certain dynamics of following Jesus where it's not just you and Jesus, it's, it's you and those who are following Jesus. And there's this, this community dynamic, you know, shoulders that are nudging you or, or elbows that are nudging you, yours that are, elbow, are elbowing others. Um, but there's this community dynamic where the led life is a life of community and it's a, we need to recognize it's, it's a life of growing community. It's a life of, of a growing community in the sense that we're all broken. We're all in need of healing and wholeness. And so when Jesus says these famous words, judge not, that you be not judged, he's trying to get to these dynamics of, of living life in this broken community. How do we get along? How do we actually navigate this kind of dynamic where, where we all need help? And um, it's so easy just to point to the way others need help instead of how I need help, too. And so we're going to get to that here. Um, Go ahead and go there with me. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. It says, Judge not that you be not judged. And I'll keep reading. This is from the New King James. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. This is pretty absurd, right? Hypocrite, verse 5 says, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet. And turn and tear you in pieces. Whew. Some of these words you've probably heard before, like, like we said, you know, people often quote this judge not, don't judge me, don't, lest you be judged. And here's, I want us to explore what it means and also what it doesn't mean. Judge not, what does it mean and what does it not mean? Well, let me start with this what it doesn't mean. I don't believe that Jesus is simply saying that we shouldn't concern ourselves with the behavior of others that we should just kind of ignore what's going on, even the destructive behavior that is around us. It's not an absolute statement that everything goes. It's not an absolute statement that sin ought not to be dealt with. People have their own business. You just kind of leave that alone, that kind of thing, that we shouldn't think critically about others' behavior or decisions. Because, in fact, in verse 5, he actually says something about this. His first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to do what? to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So there, at some level, there's some permission. There's some room for the community that's following Jesus to actually allow each other to peer into each other's lives and help. And so we're not talking about just, eh, hands off, 
don't care, indifferent about other people's experience. But what does it mean? I believe what Jesus wants us to consider is how we go about dealing with the destructive behavior uh, of others. So how? How then do we approach this? I I think there are two keys right here, and verse 2 is one of them. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the, what's the next word in your Bible? With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. In other words, the the standard, the, the yardstick, the scales, right? The measures or the scales you would want to be used with you. So when we're approaching others who are in erring behavior or destructive patterns, um, we need to approach them with, with a standard. Like uh, I think the, the term is double standard. We, 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 can't, we have to avoid double standards. Standards that we're not willing to live up to ourselves, right? So we shouldn't hold others to standards that we aren't humbly surrendered to ourselves. That's, that's one key in how we go about dealing with, with uh, behavior that ought to change. But what's the other key? In verses 3 to 4, take a look. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? <laughs> uh, I've thought about bringing a, a plank with me today, but um, <laughs> that, that just didn't work with strollers and everything like that. But Reuben, ha- has there ever been, like on the construction site, has there ever been something that has gotten into your eye as you've been building or putting up stuff? Or? No, you're smarter than that? Okay. Yeah, some dust, things like that. Okay. Maybe you're smart enough not to get planks in your eye, right? <laughs> Joists and beams and things like that. I mean, this is pretty... Uh, Jesus is using kind of exaggerated language here. But there's something about this. In your own eye. Hey, before you start dealing with the things in other people's lives, what, have you taken time to reflect on what's in your life? Verse 4, Or how can you say to your brother, Let me remove the speck from your eye and look... A plank is in your own eye. Dealing with others' destructive behavior or decisions, things that you know ought to be rerouted, it should start with self-awareness first. It should start with the willingness to reflect on your own planks. Um, And it's interesting because a lot of times the things that we notice in other people's lives are usually the things that we're dealing with ourselves or struggling with ourselves. And that's why, you know, it catches our attention. Um, many times that's, that's the case. And that should give us, that should give us a level of, of compassion, right? That should give us a level of, of humility because we recognize, hey, they're struggling with it just like I am. And that should give us a sense of hope of redemption rather than pride, uh, rather than setting our sights uh, to, to condemn them and cut them down. And maybe some of us may ask, well, what if I see something in someone else's life that I personally don't struggle with at all? There is no plank there, you know? They've got this, this speck, and I've got clear vision about, you know, they, they need to change this. This is not something that I struggle with. It's an addiction that I've never dealt with. But I know that if they were to pursue or persist in that, it would just go the wrong road. I must not have a plank there, right? I can just go right in. I could just jump in and pull specks out of their lives, Right? Well, maybe I would submit this, that there still may be a plank. A plank that would obstruct your vision to even understand where they're coming from in the first place. The plank doesn't have to to be the same issue that the other person is dealing with. The plank is anything that obstructs your ability to compassionately understand where they're coming from. I don't know, maybe you've had a coworker or a classmate 
that, man, every time they come in through the door, they're just like, life is miserable. <laughs> you know, the joy bar goes down. The, uh, you know, you're just like, wow, what is going on with this individual? And you just want to get back at them. But then somebody mentions to you, oh, you know what? Uh, their uncle was just diagnosed with cancer. And all of a sudden, like, you, your jets are cooled. You feel like you can back off and just let that behavior sit for a while. And you can approach that a little bit differently, all because you've understood something different. Nothing changed about them. Their behavior didn't change. But there was something that changed about your ability to understand them. There are planks in our lives that obstruct our ability to really understand what is causing the destructive behavior in other people's lives. And I think Jesus is encouraging us to remove those planks, to actually be willing to listen to the other side of the story. And so the life that is led by God, I'll say this, it will remove its own planks before it removes the specks of others. <laughs> in verse 5, I think that's where Jesus gets to this. He says, hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye. And then you will see clearly. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. There's this really awesome quote here from the book Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings. Page 127. Just really, uh, man, it articulates this concept of, of removing our planks a lot better than I could. It says, when a crisis comes in the life of any soul and you attempt to give counsel or admonition, your words will only have the weight of influence for good that your own example and spirit have gained for you. Let that sink in just a little bit. You're ready to kind of tell them how it is. You're ready to, to admonish them or rebuke. But your words will only have the weight of influence that your example earns for you, right? That your own life has gained for you. Here's the next part. Not until you feel that you could sacrifice your own self-dignity and even lay down your life in order to save an erring brother, have you cast the beam out of your own eye so that you are what? You are prepared to help your brother. Man, whoa, read that again. That's a really long sentence, but it's so worth it. Not until you feel that you could sacrifice your own self-dignity. Not until you feel like, hey, you know, that person is so valuable to me, I'm going to lay down my life for that brother. I'm going to lay down my life for that sister. Not until we've done that have you cast the beam out of your own eye so that you are prepared to help your brother. So maybe the plank isn't, isn't so much the fact that you're dealing with the same issue. Maybe the plank is actually that you don't have love for that brother or sister. You don't really care for their soul. And until you've removed that selfishness and that pride, until you're willing to lay down your life for that very brother or sister, that's when you've, that's when you've removed the beam. And then here's the last sentence. Then you can approach him and touch his heart. I love that. Then you can approach him and touch his heart. So we're not just after the behavior. We're actually after the heart. Apparently, removing specks from each other is something that a genuine community of followers will allow. But it'll only allow it on certain conditions, right? It'll only allow it when, uh, when we know that we're loved, when we know that we're safe, when we know that we're unconditionally accepted, when we know that we're on the same team, when we know that we're not out to cut each other down so others can be raised up, when we know that we're not out to condemn each other so that we can justify ourselves. 
And so if we're looking at the life that is led by God, here's the first reality. The life that is led by God gives loving feedback. It gives loving feedback. I'll, I'll be honest, feedback, you know, being able to hear from another person's perspective ways in which I need to grow is not something that I intentionally pursue. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's um, just the, the way that we, we operate. We, we don't want to hear it from other people. Um, but what if in the community of Christ followers, we're actually willing to give loving feedback and we're actually willing to receive loving feedback as well? Um, but let's be honest. We're not always open to that, right? We're not always wanting that. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about in the next verse. In verse 6, he says, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet. He's talking about things that are holy and things that are like pearls, things that are precious. And when he's talking about that, he's talking about this kind of feedback, this loving feedback. It's precious. It's holy. It's pearls to somebody. But a lot of times we're not willing to, to take that from people. And so we treat it like a dog would treat a pearl or a, a pig would treat a pearl. They wouldn't recognize how valuable that is. And so they trample on it anyway. And so apparently there's a danger of becoming so hardened by sin and our personal agendas that we cannot discern what ought to be appreciated. We cannot discern how precious those pearls of feedback are. We cannot discern how precious and valuable, even holy, that, that uh, loving feedback is. In fact, I would submit this, that helping each other see each other's blind spots is probably one of the most loving things that we can do for one another. I'll admit, it's one of the hardest things we can do for each other, right? But it's one of the most loving things. And yeah, of course, it's not the only loving thing we should do for each other. Right? We shouldn't just be like a single script of, hey, let me tell you what you should correct in your life. No. But, um, but this, is, this is something that is beautiful, something that is precious. When there's a community of faith that actually gives and receives loving feedback, it's holy. It's precious. Um, but let me give some, just two practical suggestions Maybe you're, you've got feedback waiting for your brother or sister. You've got feedback waiting for, you know, um, that, that person, and uh, you just can't wait to do it. But, but let me just give two practical suggestions, just based on this whole idea of dogs and pigs trampling these things down, not treating them as precious. Two practical suggestions. Number one, only give feedback when you are convinced that it's a precious pearl. Like, don't, don't give feedback that you think will just, you know, it's like a bomb and you drop it and you run, <laughs> that kind of thing. Only give feedback when you believe that it's a precious pearl and when you think that the other person is in a state of heart to receive it as a precious pearl too. The second practical suggestion would be, let's be humble enough ourselves to receive loving feedback, to recognize the value in the feedback that other people give. I would love to create a culture here in church, and I've, I've spoken with several of you because you've been open and transparent with me, and I really appreciate that. And I think that's what we need to do, especially in these early stages of our church family, that we ought to be willing to share with one another so that we can, each, we can grow. There's a proverb that says, iron sharpens iron, and that's how we need to be. That's how we need to be. So treat feedback as precious. Receive feedback as precious. Give feedback as a precious pearl to help others grow. So the life that is led by God will give loving feedback. All right, 
Let's continue. In Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 7, Jesus transitions from planks and pearls to prayer. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, the Bible says, again, some, some very famous words, quotable, very easy to remember. He says, ask and it will be what? Given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now I'll be honest. I've heard these words before. And I've heard these words kind of like in a vacuum. Of just like, hey, God wants to give you anything you ask for. And I remember as a young person just thinking, anything? Really? <laughs> you know? Those kinds of things. But I, I want us to see that, uh, that ask, seek, and knock. And if you're ever trying to figure out how to remember that, you know, it, it spells the acronym ASK. Ask, seek, knock. Anyways, kind of true. Um, but as you're, as you're realizing, okay, what is it that we can ask for? What is it that we can seek for? What is it that we can knock for that will, be, will have this like blank check kind of uh, promise behind it? Realize that Jesus is, is sharing these prayer promises to the same audience that he told, Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven, and all these things will be added unto you. In other words, it's in the context of the the Sermon on the Mount where he's been describing what our priorities ought to be. He's been describing what righteousness ought to be, ought to look like. And so when we're asking and seeking and knocking, really we're asking and seeking and knocking for that exceeding righteousness, that exceptional relationship with God that Jesus has been teaching about all along. And so here, you know, there's a, a Bible commentary that I've been referencing for this sermon series. George Knight says this, Christ's imperatives, the ask, seek, and knock. Christ's imperatives are humanly... Oh, I'm sorry. He's talking about the imperatives of the Sermon on the Mount altogether. Christ's imperatives are humanly impossible to fulfill. Thus, they drive us to God's forgiving and enabling grace. And only by prayer do we find the grace that enables us to fulfill God's ideal as set forth in the Sermon on the Mount. Those who ask, seek, and knock for such assistance will not be turned away. And you're wondering, how can I actually live this life that's led by God? How can I actually live this exceeding righteousness that we've been talking about? It's not humanly possible. It's not. And that's why we ask. That's why we seek. And that's why we knock. Um, And so the life that is led by God, it will pray for the things God prioritizes. It will ask for the things that God prioritizes. It will seek for the things that God prioritizes. It will knock hard for the things that God prioritizes. I don't know if, if this is true for you, but there are times in my experience where the word pray or prayer kind of loses its color. It loses its, its, its uh, depth and significance. You know, someone will share something with me and say, you know, I'll, I'll pray about it or I'll, I'll share somebody with somebody else and and they'll say, yeah, I'll pray, that. I'll pray about that for you. And sometimes we don't really understand what, what that means. Like, when I pray about that, or when they say that they're going to pray about that for me, they're thinking about it. And they're, they're sympathizing with me. But they're not really praying. Does that make sense to anybody else? Yeah? There are times where, we, where prayer has kind of just become a nice thought about somebody else or for something else. But I think when Jesus gets to these three ideas, asking, seeking, and knocking, he's giving some flesh and bones to what praying is really all about. There's a kind of prayer that is asking prayer, 
if you will. Okay? There's a kind of prayer that is asking prayer. In other words, it's the kind of prayer that recognizes a need and is asking for the fulfillment of that need. Okay? God, um, I don't have enough to, to meet the bills this month. I'm asking. <laughs> right? Um, God, I'm not quite sure which direction I'm supposed to go. Uh, downtown Denver is turning me around. You know, I'm asking. Um, you know, asking prayer is the kind of prayer that is driven by a sense of need and our inability to meet that need. But then Jesus starts talking about seeking, not just to ask, but to seek. And you'll notice that, you know, between asking, seeking, and knocking, there's kind of these layers or intensifications. Uh, you know, asking is a little bit less urgent than seeking. Seeking kind of has this drive of priority. There's a new sense of urgency behind it. Um, like, you know, like in the previous passage of Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God. Don't worry about all these other things. Seeking is actually in, in contrast to worrying. Uh, if you were here last week, or if you can just look at the end of Matthew chapter 6, um, in verse 33 and 34, it says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not what? What do you see there? It says, do not worry about tomorrow. Interesting. So seeking is actually in contrast to worrying. The word worry in the Greek means falling to pieces. And so seeking is like having this wholehearted, all the pieces, all the energy just zeroed in on something. And so when Jesus is talking about seeking prayer, He's talking about an, an added urgency of desire or priority for God's kingdom, for God's will. Seeking prayer is what we do when we've lost something and we acknowledge its priority in our life and how we need that thing in our life. And so there's asking prayer, which recognizes our need, but then there's seeking prayer, which recognizes God's priority. And we're like, we're going after it. And then it's not just asking, and it's not just seeking, but it's knocking. What are the th- at what points in your life do you end up knocking? When was the last time you knocked? Okay, uh, let me ask this question. At what geographical points in your life, where do you knock? <laughs> when you, say it again. Yeah, yeah, when, when you've gotten to a place that you're wanting to go to, someone's house a building when you're wanting entrance into someone's presence. Asking prayer is recognizing a need. Seeking prayer is recognizing God's priority. But then knocking prayer is recognizing that, okay, beyond the need, beyond the kingdom, I just need God. I just need to get into God's presence. And that's where knocking comes in where you realize that what transcends my need right now, what transcends my priorities right now, is God's presence. I need Him. I don't just need this blessing. I don't just need this priority to be fulfilled. I need Him. And when we realize this, man, it's what we do when we long for entrance into God's presence above all things. That's why I believe that in Luke chapter 11, actually flip there with me. Luke chapter 11 is the is the parallel passage uh, for these asking, seeking, knocking promises. But in Luke chapter 11, it kind of has an interesting twist. <clears throat> so you're in Matthew, go to Mark, and then Luke. Luke chapter 11. In Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 9. Yeah. 
If you're there, go ahead and say amen. Okay. Just, so a lot of this will sound very familiar, like stuff that we've just read. So, so I, I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Praise the Lord that when we knock for his presence, he'll, he'll open. He'll give us entrance. Verse 10, for everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? The obvious answer is, of course not. Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? That'd be a really terrible father. <laughs> okay. Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? Verse 13. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give what? Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. There in Matthew 7, it was how much more will the Heavenly Father give good things to those who ask Him? But there in in Luke 11, the ultimate blessing, the ultimate good thing is the Holy Spirit. It's God's presence Himself. There's asking prayer where we sense a need and we need that, that to be fulfilled in our lives. There's seeking prayer where we have priorities that are rearranged and we realize, okay, I want God's priority. I want God's will. But then there's knocking prayer where you realize that the only thing you need is entrance into God's presence. Asking, seeking, and knocking. This is what Jesus is, is, is inviting us into. When we, when we are living the led life, we'll prioritize the things that God prioritizes. And I tell you, on the top of God's priority list is to be with us. On the top of His list is to be present to indwell us. And is it on the top of ours? Is it on the top of ours? You know, before we move away from these prayer promises back in Matthew 7, um, something really, uh, it crossed my mind that uh, these prayer promises are actually right on the heels of this whole idea of not judging and how we give feedback and things like that, how we deal with people who are difficult in our lives. And I wonder if, uh, I guess the thought that crossed my mind this week as I was studying this is this simple question, could it be that these promises on prayer actually have a specific application to those community dynamics of dealing with people who are in error or people who are just really like rubbing against you? Could it be that these promises of asking, seeking, and knocking have special application to those times where we need to give feedback and we're not quite sure how to give it? Have you ever been in those situations where you're like, man, I need to say something. I'm not even sure how to say it, though. And so you end up turning to God like, Lord, please help me. And and you're seeking and you're knocking for God's will to be done in that relationship. And it's very interesting because as I thought about this more, I mean, maybe you've heard the promise in Matthew chapter 18 where two or three agree on anything concerning earth. It shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. In Matthew 18, verse 19, that, that powerful promise, or maybe you remember verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in his name, there I am in the midst, you know? What's really interesting about Matthew 18, that prayer promise, is that actually comes on the heels of, uh, you know, when, when your brother is in error, go to him alone. And if he doesn't listen to you when you're one-on-one, then bring someone else with you. And if he doesn't listen then, then bring the whole church with you. You know, it's, it's, that prayer promise comes right on the heels of how to deal with people who are off, you know, who, who are doing things that ought not to be done. And, and, and this is just really interesting to me because there is something about prayer that allows for a community to really give the kind of feedback that we need. 
Um, and James, chapter 5, actually turn there with me very quickly. James is also in the New Testament towards the end. James chapter 5, it's after all the T's, then you got Philemon, Hebrews, and James. James chapter 5. James chapter 5. When you're there, say, I'm there. Let's see if we can find this. James chapter 5. Here we go. Verse 16. Verse 16. I'm going to read the last part of verse 16. The last part of verse 16. And maybe you've heard this, because this is very familiar. This was actually given to us on a card um, at the Prayer on the Rock experience. I don't know if, uh, for those of us who are there. The last part of verse 16 says this. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Okay? Awesome prayer promise. Okay? But notice what the first part of verse 16 says. Confess your trespasses to one another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It's very interesting to me that some of the most powerful promises on prayer are connected to these instructions about how to deal with each other when community dynamics are askew, are amiss. And it's those times when there's trouble in the church or there's trouble in the family, that we really need prayer. Are you following with me today? I'm telling you, I mentioned this earlier, that giving feedback and and dealing with each other's difficult behavior and things like that, it's not just about dropping that bomb and running, okay? (laughs) No, it's about giving a precious pearl and praying for and praying with each other towards healing and wholeness. Wow, do you see the power of prayer here? Uh, when, when, we're, when we're in those kinds of dynamics as a community, as a family, as a household, as a school, as a workplace, whatever, wherever you're experiencing those kinds of relational rubs, prayer has to be in the mix if there's ever going to be healing and wholeness. Prayer has to be. It has to be. Why? Because it keeps us humble and heart-searching so that we're not, we're not just dropping barbs and criticisms and things like that but that we're giving precious pearls of loving feedback. But it also, it keeps us focused on the redemptive outcomes that we hope to see when we're dealing with difficult people. Prayer has to be there. Asking prayer, seeking prayer, and even knocking prayer. Okay, we're moving from planks to prayer, and now to power. In verse 12, this is the the last verse that we'll look at here today. Verse 12, another famous one-liner of Jesus In verse 12, it says, this is back to Matthew 7, sorry, back to Matthew 7. Back to Matthew 7. I'm I'm just going to read from verse 7 all the way into verse 12, just so that you can kind of see the flow of what we know as the golden rule, okay? Verse 7 says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. What man is there among you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, verse 12, therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this 
is the what? What do you see there? For this is the law and the prophets. Have you heard this verse before? Whatever you want to be done to you, do it unto others. Right? Whatsoever you want men to do to you, do unto others. This is what we call the golden rule. It's the golden rule. In other words, it's the most precious. It's kind of the capstone of it all. In fact, in verse 12, he says, For this is the law and the prophets. This is like, this is the whole scriptures summarized into one sentence. And what's interesting to me is that he says, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. As I was studying this week, I realized that it never crossed my mind that the golden rule actually comes as the conclusion of these prayer promises. The golden rule, it actually is seen uh, in connection with the immediate context of how we relate to each other and how we give pearls or whatever, of feedback and things like that. And in this flow of thought, we see something very interesting, that praying specifically and persistently for each other is one of the most loving things that we can do for each other. You want people to pray for you? Pray for them. (laughs) Right? Therefore, seeing the golden rule in connection to prayer, seeing the golden rule in connection to this idea about feedback and things like that, uh, wow, this is how we do it. We do it in the way that we would want others to do it to us. We give pearls in the way that we would want others to do it to us. We pray for each other as we would hope others would pray for us. But there's more. There's a bigger picture. The fact that it says, therefore, you know, we, we always have to ask that question, what is it there for? And here, I believe Jesus is actually summarizing. He's kind of getting to his appeal. You know, he's about to land the plane for this sermon. And uh, he has been preaching about how, remember in, in Matthew 5, verse 17, he said, I have not come to destroy the law or the prophets. I haven't come to destroy, but to fulfill. Right, this is the last time he mentioned the law and the prophets. And then uh, throughout the rest of chapter 5, he's expanding on the law of the prophets. Throughout chapter 6, he's teaching us how to live that in spiritual practices And then now in chapter 7, he's saying, okay, so you remember all that stuff about the Law and the Prophets? Let's bring it home. Let's bring it home. So here in the bigger picture, therefore, when he says in verse 12, therefore, whatever you want men to do, he's making this the summary. He's making this, okay, you've been listening this whole time. This is what it is then. This exceeding righteousness. It's about this. Whatever you want men to do to you, do it unto others. Our capacity to live this life of exceeding righteousness, our capacity to love others and to love God, it's only going to happen as we've heard what he has just said right here, right here. And what was it that he just said? In verse 11, he gave the assurance, hey, you've got a father who is better than earthly fathers. You've got a father that is going to give you the best gifts that you need. You've got a father who loves you with tender love. And so our ability to live the law and the prophets it's only going to be contingent upon our ability to receive God's love for ourselves. Note how Jesus inserts the golden rule on the heels of being assured of God's love. There's this really, um, let's see here. Do we have it? Okay, hold on. I'll get to that in just a moment. (laughs) So the question about the golden rule is, what does it actually mean? What does the golden rule really call us to? I don't know, maybe you've shared it with your kids at times around the, the, the dinner table. Man, do you, do you want your brother to put his foot on your plate? You know, that kind of, <laughs> no, no, you don't. Then don't do it to him. You know, that kind of, <laughs> as you would have them do to you. In other words, before doing something to somebody, the simple requirement is ask, would I want them to do that to me? 
right? And the implication is that Jesus wants us to think, not just from our perspective, but from someone else's shoes. The golden rule calls us to live outside of ourselves, to think outside of ourselves just for a minute. Before you act, before you behave, before you inflict whatever, think about that other person's perspective first. And here's where I want us to look at this statement from uh, page 134 of Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings. In your association with others, put yourself in their place. Wow, we would save a lot of drama if we just followed that one simple instruction. In your association with others, put yourself in their place first. Enter into their feelings, their difficulties, their disappointments, their joys, and their sorrows. Identify yourself with them. And then do to them as were you to exchange places with them, you would wish them to deal with you. And a lot of the racial tension that we're experiencing in the United States right now, Wow, how would this be like a healing balm in that situation, right? Could we, were we to switch places with them just for a moment so we could feel their hurt, their disappointments, their difficulty, what it's like to be in that situation? Man, we would treat each other a little bit differently. Walking a mile in someone else's moccasins, so to speak. And do you know what this is, I mean, this idea of putting ourselves into other people's shoes and stuff, do you know what that's called? I mean, maybe you have words for it like empathy or showing understanding, or things like that. There's actually a theological term. I don't know. Have you, have you heard of this term before? Incarnation. Have you heard that before? Incarnation. It's a term that is actually used incarnate, or carna, uh, carne. That's a, that's a word for flesh. Okay? It's actually a reference to when Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, he became in the flesh. In other words, Jesus didn't just want to save us God reaching down to humanity. He actually stepped into humanity to understand our weakness, to understand our sorrow, and to save us from that position. Incarnate, to become incarnate in the flesh. In other words, when we're putting ourselves in other people's shoes, we are living as Christ lived. The golden rule is actually living. What it's actually calling us to is to be like Jesus. Jesus. To become incarnate. To step into someone else's shoes just for a moment before you act or, say, or speak or say anything about this or that. When we're led by God and when we're loved by God, we'll actually live as Christ lived. That's what the golden rule is calling us to. It's to ask not what others ought to do for me, but to lay self aside. It's to ask not, not what, how much more or how much better other people can treat me, but it's to, to consider what needs to be done in order for others to be brought hope and healing. This is what Jesus did. This is the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, who stepped into our shoes, not just for a brief blip in His experience, but He is in our shoes even now, right? Like that, that human flesh, He will bear that throughout eternity. That's what Jesus did for all time and eternity. So He could not only understand us, but so he could serve us and save us and redeem us. And friends, that's exactly what this world needs right now. This world needs a revelation of Jesus. This world needs to see Jesus. But they won't see Jesus when we don't understand each other. They won't see Jesus when we're unwilling to become incarnate, so to speak, and to step in, into each other's experiences. Jesus invites us into the life that is led by him so that we can reveal that kind of love to the world. 
That's what Jesus is calling us to. Man, so the life, the life that is led by God reveals the power of incarnational love. Man, there is power. When you see someone truly understand another person, I mean, every now and then on my Facebook feed, I will see these, uh, these videos of just humans or people just being completely compassionate and like, you know, just doing amazing things that ought always to be done. And you're just like, oh, and uh, one of our friends, whenever she posts one of those videos, um, her, her caption is, humans being. <laughs> I like that. They're, they're being what they ought to be. And, and this is exactly what the world needs. They need to see a revelation of people who truly understand each other and step into each other's experience. Notice, um, again, some really powerful quotes. It is because men take upon themselves the name of Christ while in life they deny his character that Christianity has so what? Little power in the world. Have you ever wondered why the church has so little impact in the world? Why why we have so little impact in our neighborhoods or or whatever the experience might be? Here's the reason. It's because men take upon themselves the name of Christ, but they totally live a different way. That's why Christianity has so little power in the world. But here's the opposite. Here's, Here's the opposite picture. When those who profess the name of Christ shall practice the principles of the golden rule, the same power will attend the gospel as in apostolic times. Early church times. Church times when 3,000 were added in a day. And it says that the Lord was adding to the church daily, such as should be saved, right? Man, the reason why we have so little power is because we are living for ourselves rather than living outside of ourselves. And the minute there's a community or an individual who is willing to step out and into someone else's experience to love someone incarnationally. I don't know if that's really a word. Spell check tells me it's not. But (laughs) the moment we step into someone else's experience to understand them and treat them with that understanding, there's power in that. The life that is led by God will reveal the power of incarnational love. So those three things, those three things... we think we just, uh, just to, to, to summarize, the life that's led by God, what is it? Um, it gives loving feedback. The life that is led by God prays the things that God prioritizes. And the life that's led by God reveals the power of incarnational love. Man, as, as you're letting these things sink in, as Jesus is starting to turn the corner and land the plane for the Sermon on the Mount, what is it, you know, what is it that God wants us to do with this? Maybe one of these these takeaways you're, you're wanting to really uh, pray over. But I would just want to extend a simple appeal to us as a church family, um, just recognizing where we're at. You know, this is what we're three, three and a half, four months into our experience as a church. And what a ride it has been, right? What a blessing it has been. I hope that each and every one of us have been growing along. But I just really want to extend an appeal to us as a community of faith to be the kind of community that lays aside planks and is willing to give and receive pearls. To be the kind of community that prays with, prays for each other. To be the kind of community that reveals this kind of love to each other. Incarnational love to each other. Can we be that kind of community? To, to create a culture, that, a, a, a community dynamic that actually allows for real growth, that actually allows for real discipleship. Please, I plead with you. Let us not be content with playing church here. 
Can we do that? Can we please grow a, a holy discontent with just the routine, with just showing up, with just spectating? Can we, can we personally and communally seek to be the kind of followers that remove planks, drop pearls, pray with each other, and love well? Can we do that? That's my, that's my simple appeal, my heartfelt appeal. And, you know, maybe a side appeal would be to simply recognize that small groups <laughs> that we're talking about and things like that, that's an awesome environment to do that. That's an awesome environment to grow in that. Uh, this is not just a shameless plug. I'm, I'm serious. This is a practical step that, hey, you're wondering, how can I actually grow in that way? There, there's something about a small group dynamic where barriers can come down. There's something about a small group dynamic where you can actually pray with each other and not feel embarrassed like someone's like, proofreading your prayer or anything like that. You know, there's something about a small group dynamic that allows people to love each other and to really step into each other's shoes. So I would encourage you, if you're thinking about how to actually join a small group and stuff, that this is an awesome way to start establishing this kind of culture. But let us, as a church, let us, as individuals, be the kind of people who will remove planks, really pray, and love well. Who's in? Who's in? Yeah? I'm in. I'm in. I want to do it. Yeah. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, our desire is to live like you're calling us to live. We realize that this isn't in our own power. And so, we ask for you to supply our need. We seek your will to be done in our lives. And we knock so that we can truly enter into your presence and you into our hearts. God, we know that you're already knocking on our heart's door today. There are things that we, uh, just as we're studying these things, we realize that they are not in our uh, repertoire of habitual interpersonal relationships, God. Um, and so if, if we need to be re-educated about how to interact with people, if we need to be re-educated about how to pray for one another and even just to pray in general, Lord, if we need to be re-educated and rewired to know how to love well, then God, we give you permission right now. Just do that heart surgery that we all need. Thank you so much, God, that you're willing to do this for us. Thank you so much that you are able to do that for us. And if you know the, the, this chorus, maybe just sing this along with me. He's able, he's able, I know he's able, I know my Lord is able to carry me through. Just sing that again one more time. He's able, he's able. I know he's able, I know my Lord is able to carry me through. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' saving name, we all said, amen. Amen. Thanks, friends. God bless you guys. Have a restful, enjoyable Sabbath. If you're wanting to lead, host, or join a small group, make sure to fill out your Connect card. You can leave your Connect card there in the welcome basket on the table. God bless you.